Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. Hello, old time crime gals. It's Melissa this week, and I am running solo. This week's episode got a little delayed, and I apologize. Um, Life happened, and then we had some technical difficulties in our studio that needed to be fixed. And so now I have equipment working, and I have a story to tell you for this week. We're going to talk about Tara Lynn Grant, and again, it's going to be kind of tied into Valentine's Day. I know we're a little bit behind, but I do hope that everyone out there had a wonderful Valentine's Day and that we continue to feel the love this year because things have been hard these past couple years, so we want to just have a year of love. At least that's how I'm going to look at it. And so today, let's talk about Tara Lynn Grant. So she was born in Michigan in June of 1972, and Tara grew up with her sister, Alicia. She attended Michigan State University, where she studied business. So while she's at school, she meets this guy, um, like you, you know, usually do, and his name is Stephen Grant, and he studies politics. I have beside my notes, red flag. (laughs) But Stephen was also from the same area of Michigan, and they seemed to hit it off. And so Stephen wanted to be in politics, and an opportunity actually came up that he got the chance to work with a senator. So he dropped out of school and and went to work with the senator. I don't know what he did, if he was a campaign manager, if he was an assistant, if he was um, advisement. I I do not know. If Shannon was here, she'd be asking me those questions. Um, If you're a listener, you would know what I mean. Um, But anyway, so he left school and Tara stays and she gets her bachelor's degree in business and she job hops, but she ends up working for a company based out of Boise, Idaho called Washington Group International. And it's a consulting firm that like offers engineering, construction services, etc. to different businesses and governments all over the world. So as she grows in the company and she climbs the ranks, you know, her job changes And she's actually required to travel internationally for short periods of time, which doesn't sound bad. You get out of college, you get a job, and you get to travel. And so she, it was a dream job for her. She loved it. So Stephen, his job had ended with the senator, so he didn't have anything going on. Remember, he dropped out of school. So he actually would go along on these trips with her. And I imagine it probably was just like a honeymoon phase of their relationship all the time because you get to go... You know, they were in Europe, they were in, you know, Asia, they were all these different places. And they eventually get married. And then when they get married, you know, their family starts to grow. So first came their daughter, and then two years later, a son. I don't know their names, Shannon, because you're listening. But with two small children, they can't just, you know, grab a go bag and pick up and travel on a whim when her job was called her to be away. So, you know, they have to slow down a little bit because having children makes you do that sometimes. And so by this time, they had lived and moved into this house that they thought they were going to stay there and settle down. It was in Washington Township in Michigan, and they had to have a discussion. You know, they had to have a hard talk about how they were going to handle things. And somebody had to stay back and take care of the kids. And since it was Tara's job and she's the one who had to be away, you know, Stephen was going to have to 
to, you know, be Mr. Mom. He was going to have to be a stay-at-home dad, and he can't work, so he was currently not employed, and it just made sense. And for the time being, you know, that worked out for their family. But in 2006, her job responsibilities changed a little, and she actually kind of was stationed in in one place long-term. And while that seems like it would be a better situation, her office just happened to be in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And they live in Michigan. And so she's away from her family during Monday through Friday, where she lives in Puerto Rico and works at her office. And then she flies home every weekend. Now, to me, that would seem like cool for like two weeks. After that, I would be over it. Because it's not just, you think about traveling home for the weekend from college or just even commuting an hour to work every day is annoying. And she has to fly, um, you know, across the country every week, twice. (laughs) So... I'm pretty sure it got old pretty quick. But despite being away during the week, Tara would make sure that her kids knew how much she loved them. I mean, there were phone calls and there were letters and pictures and I'm sure video chats. And, you know, she was trying to stay as involved as she could, even though her office was so far away from home. You know, plus, you know, she not only had Stephen help her out, they had a lady by the name of Verena Durkis. And so she was a 19-year-old German all pair that Tara and Steven met together while on a trip in Puerto Rico. And she meshed well with their family, so they hired her, and she actually resided in the house to help Steven while Tara was away at work. And and I can see Shannon going down the rabbit hole. It's 19-year-old German girl, you know, pretty, at home with this husband whose wife is never home. She's always away. It could be a bad situation, but it was not like that. At least I didn't, there's no talk of that in the research so far. So that was in 2006. So now we're in 2007. So this is like a year of this, away all week, home on the weekends. I imagine it's tiring. It's probably hard on the relationship. It's never easy when one, um, your other half is gone for so long. So in 2007, on February 9th, so it's a Friday, Tara catches a flight out of San Juan, and she heads back home to her family, like she normally does. And she was due back on Monday to her office in Puerto Rico, but she would never make it back. And come Monday afternoon, um, her company knew something wasn't right, because she just doesn't miss a flight. But, again, that's in Puerto Rico. So, it's Valentine's Day. Day of love. February 14th in 2007, Stephen Grant walks into a police station and tells authorities that his wife has been missing for five days since the 9th on that Friday. So when asked what happened on the 9th and why he hadn't reported her missing earlier, Grant goes into this story. Okay, so here's his version of what happened. Tara arrives home Friday, but she told him that she would be going back a day early and leaving on Sunday instead of Monday. Now, this caused an argument, and she started to pack again. So, like, as they're arguing, she's packing another bag, you know, out of one go bag into the other. Um, Then she took a phone call and said, I'll meet you at the driveway. And then Stephen said he watched his angry wife leave and get into a dark-colored sedan and drive away. He waited to get involvement from the police because Tara had done something like this in the past. So, it was usual, I guess, for her to storm off and drive off to cool, you know, cool down. 
And even he called her friends and her family and, you know, they just said she needs to cool off. And so to me, five days, uh, a couple of hours, maybe. I mean, I've left and driven off and, you know, need to cool your head and five days, five days. To me, that's just way too long. So the police knew that they're already behind schedule of a normal missing persons case because, you know, the sooner you start looking for somebody, the more clues you're going to find. And so they went to the Grant residence to check things out. So when they get there, they find Verena and they happen to ask her, you know, hey, what happened the other night? Like, have you seen Tara? What, what was going on? And so Verena tells her story. You know, she's out with friends and she gets home late. And Stephen kind of approached her angrily because he thought it was Tara coming back home. And then he explained to her that the same story Grant had told the police. So the story that Verena had to tell was the exact same. Tara said she was going home on Sunday, not, um, not Monday. She was going back a day early. He got mad. They had an argument. She stormed out, got into a car, and left. And so Stephen really was the only person they had as the last contact. So police decided to check financial records. Um, nothing had been moved out of her account. So five days, nothing's gone in, nothing's gone out, no charges. They checked her voicemail. So Stephen had left a bunch of messages around 2 a.m. on the 10th. So this is the early morning hours of the night that she went missing. And they said things like, you know, I beg you to come home, call your kids, they miss you. Why are you doing this? You know, I just want you home. All the things that you would expect someone to be saying, you know, calling repeatedly, leaving messages for someone that left and they want them home. And so on the way out, police were like, hey, you know, hey, Stephen, can you come in for a polygraph test? And immediately he gets a little suspicious and he's like, why do you think I had something to do with it? And, you know, police assured him that if you were a suspect, then you would be in the back of the car. We wouldn't be asking you to come. We would be taking you. And so he agreed to come take the test in the morning. But, however, the police department got a phone call from his lawyer saying no such thing was going to happen. And if they wanted to talk to Stephen anymore, they would have to contact him first. So he lawyered up. And we were talking about this. In police's eyes, yes, that's a red flag. You you look guilty. You look like you have something to hide. But on the flip side, if you didn't have anything to hide, how many times have we heard about coerced um, confessions and, and interrogations gone wrong and things that happen on the police side? And you kind of want to cover your own butt. So, eh. And the polygraph test, you could use them. They're admissible in court. You can't use them in court. They're just to guide investigators. And if you hook me up to a machine, regardless if I'm innocent, it's going to read like I'm guilty because my my um, physiological controls, I just can't control them because I get so nervous because I am hooked up to a machine. Like my blood pressure, you know, you try to take my blood pressure and it goes up through the roof because white coat syndrome is real. I would, I would look like a guilty party. So, you know, he's looking like maybe he had something to do with it, but they start digging deeper. They look at limo and taxi services from the airport, find out, you know, how did she get home? Then they look at her phone records. So Tara did not make any calls from her cell phone or receive calls from the home phone on the 9th at all. 
So how was she on the phone with someone saying that she'll meet him out of the, you know, in the driveway and storm out of the house? So the only witness was Steven. So now it's looking like he really might have something to do with what's going on. He's not cooperative. Um, he's not comfortable, doesn't talk to police. But he was comfortable with the media. So he would make sure he was heard, you know, begging and crying and demanding that Tara come home. He put himself out there as to be seen, you know, as the grieving and and husband at home and just wants his wife and he's trying to help. But, you know, in reality, he's not helping the police with anything to get down to the truth. That's what ha what had happened. He's not cooperating at all. So two weeks goes by, still no Tara. But instead of asking for updates on the case directly from the police, Stephen would often ask the media what they had heard. You know, what do you have? What do the police have? What are they looking at? You know, it's his wife that's missing. The police would have been as transparent as they legally could and more than happy to tell him what was going on. He was the one who filed the missing persons report, but he chose to lean on the media. Um, I'll never know why, but we know, especially with what we know now, it's not a good idea to get your information solely from the media at all on any matter. And so with all this talking to the media and feeling like maybe someone was finally listening and paying attention to him and he finally like gets into this groove and lets his guard down and he voices his real opinion of his wife. And so in one interview, he started off by saying that Tara was a good mother and by the end of it, he kind of goes on this rant slash interview, but it gets a little dark. He lets everyone know how, you know, he really feels. And so that Tara was never around for her children. You know, he's the one who took them to school, soccer practice, made their lunches, etc. And, you know, if they needed something, it he did it. And this is a direct quote. <laughs> so he says, I was the perfect mom, not Tara. Okay, yeah, um, I could see where he was resenting her from being away so much, and he has to do everything, as as most stay-at-home spouses feel like sometimes. Um, but she wasn't there to defend herself. Uh, he kind of, like, victim-blaming, attacking her. And, you know, he had Verena. He had an all-pair, so he did have somebody at home to help him. I'm sure he wasn't doing absolutely 100% everything, because he had an all pair to help. So, but with all this going on, uh, Verena was actually sent back. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Okay, so the company that Verena worked with, um, they send her back. Um, don't know if they send her back to Germany or if they just send her to another household, but with media coverage and Tara missing and everything going on, I think it was a smart move for them to just remove her for that situation. But, you know, he's super mom, right? He's the perfect mom, not Tara. So you think he would just be breezing because he does everything on his own, right? So he's having a really hard time. And so someone comes forward, you know, Tara's going cold. Stephen's ex-girlfriend contacts police, and she starts giving them some interesting information. So apparently, right before Tara went missing, Stephen kind of started contacting her again. Like, just, you know, a couple of emails here and there. And then it began to get a little flirty. 
And then he expressed how he thought Tara was having an affair. I mean, she's away at work all week. I, I just don't know where that was coming from. But then he wants to meet up with his ex. Um, but he decides not to because he couldn't hurt his kids like that. So a little bit of props to Steven for that. Um, you know, he had that all pair at home. Nothing went on there. And now he's trying to get back up with his ex and then changes his mind. But, you know, even though he's not talking to police, he's still doing a lot of talking. So police were right there watching every interview. They were studying his behavior, how he used certain phrases. Um, he kept mentioning the Stony Creek Park. So this was a park that was close to his house. He frequented with his family, so he would talk about it all the time. But it was kind of a little weird. It would just mention it out of the blue in an interview. Um, so police, you know, they used this and they decided they should go search the park. So on the chance that just something may turn up. So they do. Um, but it just so happens Stephen requested to accompany the search. Now, he has done nothing up until this point. I mean, it's been weeks and weeks, and he's refusing to take polygraph tests and not talking to police, but he's talking to the media. And then the police say, oh, well, let's go search this Stony Creek Park. And then he jumps right in and says, yes, I'll help you. So that's an even bigger red flag. And so, you know, it just didn't make any sense that he wanted to help. And so it starts to look like, you know, people are suspecting him of being responsible for Tara being missing. But the search turned up nothing. But now this was not like an extensive search. You know, they just took a bunch of people and like walked around. Um, then a press release came out and they asked for the public's help. And the police told everyone, you know, hey, if you go to the park, you know, walk around a little bit. Go a little further out of your comfort zone. Just see if you see anything odd. And if you, you see something, you know, report it, big or small. You know, we're running out of leads. Just help us out. And so the public came through. On February 28th, a woman was walking through the park, and she just saw this plastic bag. Now, you know, hey, we need your help finding this missing person. I come across the plastic bag. I'll call the plastic bag in. This woman decides to walk up and open the plastic bag. Um, brave or insane, but, um, you know, I would call and let someone else come check that out. <laughs> I've seen too many crime shows and read too many stories. But inside, she finds latex gloves, blood, and, like, metal shavings. So, you know, she definitely calls it in. So now this is, like, a reason to search his home, you know. But when he quit working with the senator and he, you know, he was put on Mr. Mom duty, he did find, like, work on the side. So his dad owned a tool and die shop. So, like, metal shavings could be found there in a tool shop. So this kind of, like, Stephen couldn't stop talking about this park, how they always went to the park, and then this turns up. So, police actually wanted to search his house. And so, they wanted to do a detailed search inside without letting him know that something was up. Because um, otherwise, he'll just start removing stuff and get rid of evidence before they could even get their hands on it. So, on March 2nd, cops, they stake out his work and his home. So, they decided to stop him in the middle of his route home from work on the road. So, they escort him back to his house. And told him they were there to search it. So he was visibly nervous. He was fidgety. You know, he insisted that he needed to get up and go walk his dog. Um, he wasn't arrested. You know, they weren't holding him for anything. But he, they're just there searching. So they let him up to go walk his dog. But he never grabs a leash or gets the dog. He just walks straight to his car. And uh, he was promptly reminded that the car was part of the search warrant. He couldn't get anything from it. He couldn't retrieve anything. 
And he just said all he wanted was his wallet. You know, and he gets a little mad and he just storms off. But then he keeps walking. He keeps walking until he's off the property and they just let him walk away. And so that was a big mistake because at the same time, there were officers in the garage that found huge plastic bins that were filled with black trash bags. You know, bag number one had more bloody gloves, metal shavings, so that does not look good at all. But bag number two was wrapped carefully, and inside was the torso of a woman. She was missing her head and her arms. So for nearly a month, part of Tara was sitting in the garage. Stephen had to walk his kids by those bins every day on the way to the car to go to school. So police went to the tool shop. Sure enough, metal shavings that were identical to the ones found in the bags. So next, police dig deeper and take a stronger look at Stony Creek Park. That's when they bring the bloodhounds out and the cadaver dogs. And more body parts were buried at the park. So the case was coming together, except the main suspect, you know, stormed off his property during the search and he's missing now. So now he's on the run. So it becomes a manhunt, you know, for a killer. So his lawyer phones in to police and mentions that he had talked to Stephen and he's afraid and he thinks he might be suicidal. And so he also called Verena and confessed to, you know, that he loves her, but it would never work out. And police couldn't, she couldn't even give anything other than an area code. She had no clue what was going on. And so Stephen also calls his sister and mentions that it was, um, you know, so the sister calls the police and she thinks he's headed to Michigan's Wilderness State Park. So then they make a press conference and a neighbor comes forward and says, you know, he saw the press conference and he let Stephen borrow his yellow truck because he had no idea he was on the run. He's just like, here's the keys to my car. You need to go somewhere and go ahead. So now he has a vehicle. But they do think they know where he's headed. So all this information they gathered from all the people that came forward, you know, they go out to find Stephen before he gets too far. And it wasn't hard to find this yellow truck. You know, the they had the license plate number. They, it was a yellow truck. Uh, he had fled and left clear footprints in the snow. And so police followed the tracks just right through the snow. And by morning, they found Stephen. So Stephen was under a tree. Wearing just plain clothes, no jacket. Again, this is Michigan. The snow on the ground is cold. Um, it's in February. So he had with him, he had alcohol, a bunch of pills that he had taken from his sister's house. And he had a toy gun. Not a real gun, he had a toy gun. And the theory was that, you know, he's suicidal. You know, he tries to take pills, try to drink. If that doesn't work, you know, if the police find you, you point a gun at them. Even though it's a toy gun, police don't know that from far away. And it's, you know, suicide by cop. And unfortunately, that happens sometimes, and sometimes people mean for it to happen. Um, he had razor blades, you know, there were goodbye notes written to his children. Um, so he was definitely on the suicidal edge, but he also was suffering from hypothermia because it was cold. So he was taken by helicopter to a nearby hospital. So after recovering for a bit at the hospital, you know, Stephen was ready to answer any questions. And he finally was talking about what happened. So Tara did come home on Friday the 9th. She did mention that she was going back to work on Sunday instead of Monday. They did argue about it. So he had told 100% the truth. That's what happened. But he got so upset with her and she just wasn't listening. She was just repacking her bag to go back. And he just got so tired of just being ignored that he grabbed her wrist to try to get her to stop. So she would pay attention to him. 
and she kind of pushed him away and then he shoved her and she fell backwards and hit her head against the wall. And then she got really upset and told him that he would never see his kids again because she was getting a divorce. And that's when he kind of flew into a rage and began to strangle her um, without realizing really what he was doing. Um, so he covered her head with clothing because he just couldn't look at her while he was, um, this is his quote, finishing the job. Um, he took a belt from the closet, wrapped it around her neck, and he used that to drag her down the stairs into his car. Um, and their children, seven and five, were also sleeping, you know, in the beds upstairs. So this is all going down, you know, when they're asleep. So Stephen took her to his job at the tool shop. And he prepped the floor using tarps, and he dismembered Tara and wrapped the separate pieces in plastic and put them in the black trash bags and then into the big bins. And then he took one of his children's sleds and transported the pieces to the park to bury them. And then it gets worse. As if it couldn't get worse, it gets worse. So follow me here. It's a little rough to follow. So he buried Tara in the park, all of Tara. But then he couldn't stop talking about the park. And so when he found out police were going to search the park, he freaked out. He remembered he didn't think he buried the torso deep enough because it was the largest piece and he was tired. So he raced to the park and retrieved it. So he takes it to his shop and hides it there, like on the top of the building, until March 1st. And then he was afraid the decomp smell would give it away. So he took it from the shop to his home and placed it in the garage in the bin. So the next day, he was going to go back to the park to bury it again. But thank the Lord, the police had the search warrant and found it before that could happen. So he almost got away with it. Oh, just that's just hard to follow. Taking from one place to the other and buried it and then unburied it and then hid it. And like he was traveling with it. It's just a oh, poor terrorist. Disgusting. Breaks my heart. Um, but on December 7th, Stephen pleaded guilty to mutilation, but not first-degree murder. He stated that he had no intentions on killing Tara. It was not premeditated. It just happened. Um, but the jury did find him guilty of second-degree murder, so it wasn't premeditated. But you did still kill Tara, and you were guilty to mutilation. So he was sentenced to a minimum of 50 years in prison, and eventually he will be eligible for parole. So... I hope when that time comes on the parole board, they decide to keep him in there. But Tara's sister, Alicia, um, takes care of the children. So she she took it upon herself. And every year there's a memorial marathon run in Tara's name to raise money for domestic violence. So that is the good thing that happened out of this story. So that was our story for this week. Tara Lynn Grant, thank you so much for listening and following along. I know we are a little late. Hopefully... Life will have settled, and things will be back to normal soon. Um, but for a few weeks, it will just be me, Melissa. If you can reach me at oldtimecrimegals at gmail.com or our Facebook group, Old Time Crime Gals. We will have a new episode next week. And I just want you to remember that if you do the crime, it'll catch up with you in time, and then we'll talk about it. Have a great week.